0: just lifting each other up and helping and supporting each other so um, all right here we go have you guys ever heard the phrase rearranging deck chairs on a Titanic how many of you have heard that okay so just a couple of us I thought people would be like yeah I know that's my favorite quote right okay so there is a quote that says rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic you see the irony of it right um, because the Titanic was the unsinkable ship in 1912. It fatally struck an iceberg, um, and in the process, how many of you seen the movie? Okay, you just dated yourself. Y'all are old, like me. Just Nicole and I, Nicole and I actually saw that when we were dating. So, so wait, where were we dating? I don't know, maybe we were married. So anyhow, so um, it was so memorable for Nicole. Um, there you go. It was me that was, I'm on top of the world, right? She goes, you're embarrassing me, get back down. Um, but anyhow, um, so if you know the story, um, almost 1,500 people actually died in the wreck. Uh, only 706 survived. Now, while there's no evidence that anybody ever rearranged the deck chairs on the Titanic as it was going down, the point of it is the irony of saying, The unsinkable ship is sinking. So let's busy ourselves with doing meaningless tasks just to kill the time because it seems like a thing to do, right? Now, what actually did happen was that the Titanic had a house band and they actually played to the very end until, until it went down and the band actually went down with the ship. And so while that's on one hand, it's really admirable because they were committed to say, Hey, nobody freak out. We're gonna be okay. Well, that helps to help people die a little bit easier, right? But the futility of it is maybe let's seek life-saving efforts in in the process, right? Let's figure out how more people can survive than less than a third of, of the like a third of the passengers, right? And so, um, but the irony of it is this. Now, now the truth is um, is that so often we find ourselves distractedly scurrying around in life. We busy ourselves with relatively unimportant tasks, and we expend massive amounts of energy, time, effort, focus, resources, as if our life depended on it. And in the process, we ignore life's bigger and more eternal realities. Now, this morning, we're gonna pick up in the Gospel of Matthew. If you've been following along, you guys know the story, is that Jesus gathers these followers to himself, he has the disciples and some core followers, and and things were going really, really good. This was the unsinkable ship, right? But then all of a sudden things started to turn and it started to look a little bit more like the sinking Titanic, uh, Titanic. If we put ourselves in the disciples' shoes, right, it's been a great ride, it's been amazing, but it's starting to look bleak the way that Jesus is talking. Jesus had just, last week we talked about how Jesus gives us warnings that we need to be ready, we need to be patient and persistent, we need to be faithful and fruitful, and we need to be compassionate because the end is coming, right? And, and whether it be the end, like him actually returning or just us dying and us meeting him in person, the end will come at some point. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when and how. And then um, now Jesus goes into detail about his betrayal, his arrest, and ultimately his death. If you are one of the disciples, and you have given your life, you've said, I'm all in with this guy, because he's doing all these crazy things. He's performing miracles, he's feeding multitudes, he's raising people back from the dead, he's casting out evil spirits, he's delivering people to freedom. This is really, really good, but now all of a sudden he starts talking about, I'm gonna be betrayed, I'm gonna be arrested, I'm gonna be tortured, and I'm gonna be killed along the way we start to see some deck chair rearranging we're going to be looking at the first part of matthew chapter 26 this morning you can follow along in your bibles or on your phones or up there Um, we're going to start in matthew chapter 26 verse 1. it goes like this when jesus had finished saying all these things about how we were talking last week be ready uh, be all those things he started he said this to his disciples As you know, Passover begins in two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over and crucified. At that time, the leading priests and elders were meeting in the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or people may riot. Okay, There's a couple things going on here. First of all, this high priest, Caiaphas, Okay, he, was, he ruled from the year 18 to 36 A.D. He was the son-in-law of the, of the previous high priest um, who ruled shortly before him, Annas. Okay, he ruled from 6 to 15 A.D. Now, the high priest, the Jewish high priest, was actually appointed by the Roman government. It's kind of like if we were occupied by Russia and Russia came in and said, here's your religious leaders. We will tell you who your religious leaders are. And so you have all these people from within the religion that are kind of, you know, rallying for, I want to be in control. I want to be in control. And so that kind of helps us understand that the the high priest wasn't necessarily a high priest because they were so devoted in their faith. It's they knew how to politically maneuver. They knew how to get into the right time with the right connections. I remember uh, a guy I played sports with in high school. Um, He says, Jason, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And, and sometimes in life, it seems like that's how the game is played, right? But what's, what's really interesting is that he was more of a political puppet than a religious leader. The crazy thing is, is that he actually sat over what's called the Sanhedrin as its president. The Sanhedrin was, was leading members of society. They were, they were kind of rich, well-to-do, influential people of society who gathered together to govern and rule over the people. Under the high priest, you had this structure Of the chief priests, the temple treasures, the common priests, there was like 7,200 common priests, and then under them were the Levites. They were, uh, there was about 9,600 of them. So the chief, the high priest had this huge organization under him, and basically all of society was controlled under his, under his rule. Now what's crazy is what does a high priest do? If you look back in the Old Testament, we're going to look at that in just a little bit. But think about what the high priest, that position was actually set up for in the Old Testament. Now, they wanted to get rid of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was messing with their system. Jesus didn't play according to their rules. He was messing things up. He was He was. Uh, compromising their influence their authority their good standing with the Roman government and everything like that right so they but they had to be careful they wanted to get rid of them but Jesus was kinda popular so well let's not kill him over Passover because that's one of the religious high holidays and so let's just bide our time right verse 6 meanwhile Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon a man who had previously had leprosy here's a miracle right? Simon was a leper. What was lepers in this, in this time, in this culture? They were outcasts. They could not be with other people. They were required, if someone would walk by them, to yell out, unclean, unclean, just so that people could, could get away from them. Like, this is Simon, and where's Jesus? In his home. He had delivered him. He had healed him. He had freed him, and now Jesus was in his home. Verse 7, while he was eating, A woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it over his head. The disciples were indignant when they saw this. What a waste, they said. It could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, replied, Why criticize this woman for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. She has poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. Okay, here's some interesting things here. First of all, let's step back from this, right? This is part, part of the synoptic gospels, okay? There's four gospels. Each one is kind of telling the account of Jesus as they remember it, as they saw it, or to kind of tell things in a way that kind of prove the point that they're trying to get at. Each gospel has its own unique focus. John actually tells this story like this. Jesus was anointed, and then he gives the triumphal entry. He teaches he's betrayed, and then he is killed. Matthew and Mark have the triumphal entry. He teaches, and then he's anointed, then he's betrayed, and then killed. So some people make a big difference. Well, it can't be true because they recorded it differently. No, it all happened. It was all true. But they're all trying to communicate something different. Jesus's focus, is, or sorry, John's focus is on, on, on showing how Jesus was prepared and then he entered in and had his ministry, right? It's preparing him as king. Whereas Matthew and Mark talk more about, there's, there's two unique things here of how they tell it. First of all, they talk about this anointing as preparation. Instead of a triumphal entry king, it's a dying king. It's a dying Messiah. And it's, it's Jesus says, don't be mad at her. She's preparing my body for burial because I'm going to die. I have to die. That's why I'm here. So they show, Mary, uh, Matthew kind of shows how it's preparation for the sacrificial act that Jesus is going to do. But there's also another sub-point here we're going to see the dramatic radical difference between Mary's understanding and devotion versus the disciples misunderstanding and denial. All these events happen, they're all true, but there's more important things just how the timeline plays out. Here's the other thing, the jar of perfume, it's, there's different estimations on the value of it, but a lot of people think that it costs an entire year's wage. Can you imagine? taking your entire salary. Now in this culture, it was hand to mouth. It was day by day, right? And can you imagine taking something that you had saved up for who knows how long, or maybe it had been gifted her, but she knows she could literally have a year's income from selling this, and what does she do? These these jars were kind of like a long neck, and when they would do it, they wouldn't just uncork it and pour a little bit on. It was meant like you would break the neck and then you would pour it all out. Like once you start, there is no stopping. And she takes this, I mean, the alabaster jar alone was valuable, but then the perfume in it was an entire year's wage. And she dumps it out over him. There's no holding back. She understands that that she needs to prepare her Messiah, her Savior, for burial. Now, it says that Judas was upset, and the disciples all agreed, yeah, we can blame Judas Judas was actually the treasurer. Judas was the guy who kind of held the money bag for Jesus and the disciples. And so, hey, Jesus, we need some bread. Okay, here's a couple coins, right? Judas loved taking care of the money. Why? Because he had sticky fingers. John actually talks about how he often robbed Jesus's treasury. And so Jesus, or sorry, Judas is kind of like, oh, you know how much I could have gotten for that? I could have bought myself some extra condos. I could have got myself some extra clothes. I could have got, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? Judas is upset because she's spending it on Jesus and not on what he wants. Now, again, we can be mad at Judas, but what does it say? All the disciples agreed that Mary was out of line. Now, some of them probably could have very genuinely said, you know what we could have done with that? But then look at the disconnect here it was for Jesus. Why do we serve other people? For Jesus. So let's just serve Jesus, right? The disciples misunderstood. The leaders denied, but Mary got it. She understood the significance of who Jesus was and what he was about to do, and no sacrifice was too big as a response to what Jesus was going to do. Continuing in verse 14, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priests and asked, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus for you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. From that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Mary was the last straw. You see, a lot of the people in that time wanted a political leader, a military leader. They wanted to oust Rome and to reestablish Jewish rule. They wanted the righteous to take over, right? what they considered righteous and so they were going to go through it through politics or through military revolution and it would that would all cost money and so finally he says you know what if Jesus doesn't even see how to do things then I'm going to take things into my own hand I'm going to profit off of my situation however I can his goals his hopes his dreams of what could have happened weren't going to happen so he figured he would cash out Now, here's what's interesting. 30 pieces of silver. Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, is part of the Old Testament law. You know what was worth 30 pieces of silver? A slave. If you killed someone else's slave, you owed him 30 pieces of silver. Judas sold himself as a slave for 30 pieces of silver. Now, I didn't realize that until I was studying it this week. I don't know how in all my 27 years I've been alive. <laughs> see if you guys are good at math. Um, I've never noticed this before. But it's so clear. He sold himself into slavery. He says, if, I'm, if Jesus isn't going to get what I want from him, then I'm going to give myself to something else. Jesus didn't see that he was jumping ship a sinking ship. And he was ready to rearrange deck chairs in the process. He was going to scramble and get whatever he could. He was short-sighted. He denied reality, and it drove him to sell out instead of staying true to Jesus, the way to life. Then Jesus takes his followers in verse 17. He says, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? As you go into the city, he told them, you will see a certain man. Tell him, the teacher says my time has come and I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus told them and prepared the Passover meal there. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one, Lord? He replied, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl will betray me. From the son of man, for the son of man must die, as the scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, the one who would, who would betray him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you said it. Verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words. I will not drink the wine again. I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. Okay, this is a. There's a lot going on in this in this section here. Um, some people want to deny that this is the Passover meal. Now, why they would want to deny that is kind of beyond me. I mean, there are a couple things that, that, that at the surface level looks like it might not be the, the Passover meal. But the Passover meal was basically instated um, in the Old Testament when Israel was coming out of years and years and years of slavery in Egypt, right? And, and God had said, I've heard your cries. I'm going to deliver you. Everybody, go to your home, sacrifice a lamb, a blemishless lamb and then uh, take the blood of that lamb and paint it over the door frame of your house. And then the Spirit of God that's going to come through and wipe out your captors will see the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of your home, and he will know to pass over your house. That's where we get Passover, right? And in the process, um, they would eat a meal that was rich of symbolism, that god gave them in the moment that had cups and and parts of the meal that were symbolic of what god had done and was going to do and he, who doesn't like eating meals right and so he says so whenever you practice this passover meal remember what god has done to deliver you to freedom Okay? So there was a lot of symbolism, a lot of ritual to it so that it could be passed on from generation to generation. And here we are thousands of years later still practicing Passover, right? So people's problem with calling this the Passover is that Passover was celebrated, was observed with just your immediate family. You went into your home, it was done at, at night, um, and, uh, and it was just with your original family, okay? Okay. Um, Jesus also doesn't serve lamb at this meal, so it can't be Passover. He also doesn't specify that the bread was unleavened bread. It was common bread. The word for unleavened bread is asimos, and ordinary bread is artos. And what Jesus serves is artos. It's ordinary bread, so therefore it can't be Passover because it's not a part of the ritual. And then the other thing that people have a problem with is that Passover is celebrated with individual cups. Everybody has their own individual cups, and so they had a common cup. So that can't be the same thing, right? But the evidence for it being Passover is overwhelming. First of all, Passover is eaten at night. Normal meals are eaten in the afternoon. This says at night Jesus called them together and they shared this meal. So that's very Passover-ish. It's also custom, um, in normal meals, they would sit, right? At the Passover, they would recline. And again, there's the Greek word, there's the actual word that kind of helps us understand. And what they would do is they would recline on their left arm, and then they would eat with their right hand. And they would kind of like go around the the table on the floor, on the pillows, and they would recline. What does Jesus and his disciples do? They recline. There's also hors d'oeuvres. That are served at passover it's kind of like on on thanksgiving uh one of the traditions that Nicole has started in our house is as we're cooking as we're getting everything ready we bring out pickles and olives and and other little goodies and treats and it's kind of it's it's i i actually almost fill myself up on the hors d'oeuvres before the the feast right and that was part of the passover is they would have a cup that had this this nut and fruit and juice paste in it in the table and then what they would do is they would take bread and they would dip it into it and eat it so as jesus says you know they're dipping the the bread into the cup beforehand into the bowl sorry into the bowl um and he says the one who dips his hand into the bowl at the same time of me, that's a passover thing right they didn't serve hors d'oeuvres before every afternoon meal this is a passover thing kind of cool i know i'm a history nerd so sorry if you don't like history you need to grow up and become a history fan. There we go. <laughs> the other thing, too, is, is it's cool because it just said, at the end, what do they do? They sing a, a hymn, right? Probably only first, second, and fourth verses because you don't sing the third verses of hymn. Sorry, a couple of us understand that one. Some of us grew up in the Bible Belt. There you go. Um, but what's cool is that the hymn that was, pass, was, was common for the Passover is called the Hallel. The Hallel is Psalm 115 through 118. Now, if you go through, I have it in your notes, go through and read that psalm, and to think for years and years and years, they would read this every Passover, and here's two highlights that really s- stuck out to me, because the Hallel Psalms 115 to 118, talks about God's love, his power, his discipline, his deliverance, and two that really jump out to me is Psalm 116, verse 13, it says, I will lift, I, I will lift up the cup of salvation. And praise the Lord's name forever. It says, I will lift up the Lord's cup of salvation. And then Psalm 118, verse 22, it says, The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And they missed it. They missed it. And what's so cool is to think about when Jesus called his followers together to celebrate the last supper before he was killed, they sang these verses, they proclaimed these truths. And then the part about, well, it's only with your immediate family, Jesus says there's a new family. It's a new family that goes even deeper than flesh and blood. It's our faith family. It's a family that doesn't, isn't confined to a bloodline, to genealogy, to, to anything like that. It is a, it is, it's Jesus says, who's my brother, who's my brother, or who's my mother, who's my brother, who's my sister, right? And, and we are united in our faith. He's talking about his capital C church. That connection as believers of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, goes deeper than flesh and blood. And then the part about the unleavened bread, what do you think he was accomplishing with that? It's not the law. We don't want to be legalistic, right? It's bread. It's a symbol. You don't have to get it exactly right. I've seen before where people take saltine crackers and, and, and Dr. Pepper, right? Like it doesn't matter what the symbol is. It's what the simple symbol represents. It's like with baptism it doesn't matter if we are out in the Jordan River or a pond or or a stock tank or if I just douse water over you it doesn't really matter. what matters is what it symbolizes the truth behind that action even um, there's there's uh verses in the Bible that that talk about how these symbols are just shadows of things to come. Jesus doesn't want this symbol to overshadow the real thing, Him. And then the other, the other thing, too, is, is the same cup, right? Instead of individual cups. Yes, we all have to bear the cup that Jesus gives us, but yet He has a, a communal cup, a same cup. And it's kind of fun because it's sort of like, oh, we're all dipping the bread in together. But for us, it's a reminder that we all share in the same cup, of salvation in Christ, that covenant with God is what really matters. And what's significant here is, is when Jesus shares the cup and says, this, take this cup, this is my blood shed for you. It's the third cup of the Passover meal. They had four, four or five cups, depending on what, what generation you're in. But four cups, the third cup is the cup of redemption. It's redeeming us. It's drawing us back to himself. It's Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. It says, I will redeem you with my outstretched arm, with my mighty acts of judgment. It's symbolic of what Jesus is going to do. He's going to have his outstretched arms on the cross to die for our sins. Ultimately, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. It's his body that's broken. It's his blood that was shed to save us. To pay the price for the brokenness, to bring healing and wholeness and life, to deliver us from death and sin and enslavement, right? Jesus uses the biggest, most central symbolic feast of his own people to portray the point of what he's doing. So let's step back a little bit here from this, right? In the temple system, in the religion, The priests took countless lambs and slaughtered them over and over and over because we messed up, there needs to be pay a price that is significant enough to cover the price of our sin, and so they just kept on sacrificing more and more and more lambs. It's a continual sacrifice. So all these priests would be sacrificing lambs, and guess what? It doesn't ever stick. I got to go back for more, right? The high priest was the one person who could go into the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice for all the nation. And he would go in once a year to make a uh, sacrifice for that salvation. Where is the high priest and where are the chief priests? As Jesus is doing the Last Supper. They are hiding in their palace, plotting Jesus' death see the irony here, right? They were all about the sacrificial system, about making sacrifices to make sure that they could continue life as they wanted it. They were oblivious about how they were about to make the final sacrifice, the one true, perfect, blemishless land, lamb for salvation once and for all. And then this section closes out the, the last couple of verses there um, with Peter saying, I will never desert you. I will never deny you. I will never leave you, right? And later we on, we know that he does three times. Now, again, contrast Judas's complete denial and betrayal of Jesus. Jesus uh, Peter and the rest of the disciples, because Peter's like, I won't deny you. I won't leave you. I won't run away. I, I got your back, right? And, and all, it says all the disciples agreed with him but when the time came, they ran. They ran. Now, fortunately, they didn't stay away, because even though doubt won the day, it didn't win the war, right? It won the battle, but it didn't win the war. They came back because they saw what Jesus was actually doing, but then you contrast that to Mary, who is fully present in the moment, and again, this is the same Mary that a, a lot of scholars believe it's, it's Mary and Martha, right? Martha's like, we got to do this, we got to do this, we got to do this, and Mary's kind of like, oh, Jesus, tell me more about yourself. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? Tell me. What do you think? You know, she was fully present, and guess what? She spent time with Jesus, and she understood him. And so, when everybody else was insisting, and they were scurrying off, and they were kind of like 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 instead of they were they were jumping ship from Jesus and they were jumping onto a they were jumping the ship that actually was going to float and they were jumping onto the unsinkable ship and then they started rearranging deck chairs because they thought Jesus was sinking even though they didn't realize no he would come through the other side and this boat was the one that was going to sh- to to sink so here's the big idea of this passage Jesus gave everything to give us life. This passage, when he is instating the Last Supper as a thing of remembrance, as a symbol to help us understand the significance of what he was doing, he was telling us, I'm paying the ultimate price. There's nothing you can ever do to add to, to take away, to complete, to amend, to change what I did. And anybody who tries to, to say that what I did was incomplete or insufficient and that you'd have to do this or, or if you did this, it denied that and blah, 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 he says, no, 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 I gave the ultimate gift. I paid the ultimate price. Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 33 and Hebrews chapter 8 verse 13 both say that the old covenant was a shadow of the new covenant that would come with Jesus. Instead of relying on human or man-made processes or objects or locations or buildings or structures or whatever, the Creator stepped into His own creation to pay the ultimate price that we never could. And through that, we'd find real eternal life. Through that, we would experience freedom like never before. So God used and even orchestrated world events to accomplish a greater purpose. Of bringing that true life I like how the exegetical commentary says this every crisis is an opportunity to watch God's powerful work we don't like that we don't like to think I think we're sinking I think we're sinking maybe this is where God's gonna show up if we stay true and if we fully rely on him maybe we're gonna see and it might look different than what we want it to be but do we trust him Do we put our faith in him? So here's a couple questions to help us process this passage more. In what ways are we missing the point of what Jesus did? In what ways are we missing the point of what Jesus did? And are we trying to find answers somewhere else? Do we say, yeah, Jesus was great. It was awesome. He seemed like a really cool guy, but I think I need to do this or I like this. And we try to mishmash everything together, right? How are we missing the point and how are we trying to find life and freedom and love and peace and hope and joy and all those things and the things of this world are there areas of our lives that we're still holding on to instead of surrendering to jesus that's where we talk about going from unbelief to belief in area every every area of our lives if we think through and and i it doesn't take me a whole lot of time to think through specific areas of my life where i still struggle with belief I know it here, but do I actually believe it? Do I, we always use the example of, I can believe that the plane is going to take my wife to Kansas to go watch our son play football, right? Well, I can believe that, but am I allowing it? Would I, I, ah, no, don't get on it, right? Like, no, we really believe it. She just flew out there and flew back. It was pretty cool, right? She believed that. I believe that. Are we the same way with Jesus, And I think the other thing too is is nothing is more powerful than the sacrifice of Jesus. Do we believe that? Nothing we will ever face is more powerful than the sacrifice of Jesus. Drugs, alcohol, pornography, fear, greed, anger, depression, sexuality, pride, and on and on and on. Our world wants to insert things that are so much more powerful that actually define Jesus and letting, instead of letting Jesus define those things. This week I've been doing a devotional that talks about how, how one of the images of God is a lion. Lions they're the king of the jungle. <laughs> they don't you know they're pretty powerful and there's all these crazy images of lions in the Bible and then to think that that's the same spirit that dwells inside of you and me we have god's spirit in us we are not hopeless we are not helpless but how often are we stuck in unbelief or disbelief because we we neglect that crazy spirit that he puts in us that has the power like a lion right Let's not get sucked into rearranging deck chairs. Let's not jump the ship that actually floats for one that promises to float but is on its way down. And it's gonna keep us busy. It's gonna take our time, our attention, our resources, our affection. It, it's gonna rally us around temporary things. And you know what? There's even a house ban that makes it seem really fun. But it's not gonna last. We need to run to Jesus so moving from belief to action from knowing to doing let's this week ask ourselves have we given up like Judas have we been bought off by something else have we allowed our affection our attention to be wrapped up by something else are we missing the point like Peter and the disciples right like we're so close but yet when it really pushed comes to shove, I really want this instead. Or are we like Mary, who sits at the foot of Jesus, who experiences life, freedom, love, hope, joy, all the things that Jesus brings. And are we giving ourselves radically to him? Now here's the real tragedy in the story of the titanic to get all the passengers off the boat they needed 43 lifeboats but it was the unsinkable ship you know how many lifeboats they had on 20. they they were so confident in their system that they thought why why even worry about anything else i i'll be fine I'll be fine. They had less than half the lifeboats necessary for when, if the sink the sink, shi- uh, the sink shi- shipped the si- the ship sinked. Drew <laughs> Drew's contagious man. I, I can't get my 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 mixes are all worded up. There you go. So, but most of the boats rode away half full. Most of the boats rode frantically away half full 706 lived 1496 died guys God has entrusted us with the message of Jesus as a church as followers of Jesus are we getting the heck out of Dodge are we taking the light out of the darkness? Are we hiding? Are we are we watering down the salt? Are we saying, well, no, this world is going to hell in a handbasket, so we better just just cluster together and hunker down and, and get away from all that evilness and blah blah blah. Are we getting out of the people that need the message of Jesus? Because that's the common trend that I'm seeing more and more in our world. Is it's us versus them instead of us for them. It's it's us. Rallying ourselves together against, instead of saying, you know what, that person is hurting, they just don't know it. They're they're angry, they just don't know it. They're dying, they just don't know it. They're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic and they just don't know it. Instead of rowing away from the wreck, we need to be rowing to it. Firefighters don't become firefighters because they're afraid of fire. They don't run away when you hear the sirens. You're not seeing the paramedics going away from the accident. I was just talking with, with, with people this morning about you hear the sirens going and immediately they're beelining it to where they're needed the most. That's who we are as followers of Jesus. Do we believe that? Do we believe that enough to jump into action? Jesus loved the world God loved the world so much that he put himself into his own creation to give up his life for you and me if you've experienced that amen let's live out that life let's experience that freedom but let's not turn our back on the others around us who also need that if you have not yet given your life to that I beg of you do that it's not a matter of if It's a matter of when and how. And turning our backs on Jesus is one of the biggest gambles we will ever make in our life. That's not a gamble that I'd want to make. God loves you. He cares for you. He died for you so that we could experience life now and forever in Him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your love. I thank you for how you were not afraid to sacrifice everything for us. God, you put yourself on the line to fulfill a covenant that was made thousands of years ago. That if we messed up, you were still gonna pay the price for that. God, I pray that we could experience the freedom that comes from surrendering to that. God, the relationship that comes From knowing you. God, it doesn't mean that life will become magically easy and that everything will go to to perfect, that our, our marriage will stop being a struggle, that our bank account will overflow, that people will like us more, that we'll become younger and healthier and all sorts of, you know, dreams that we might have. But God, you are with us in the realities of our life. God, I pray that that just like you met humanity in the reality of its brokenness 2000 years ago you continue to do so today God I pray that we would surrender to that that we'd experience the the meaning of forgiveness God the power of your deliverance God that we'd experience the freedom when we're not hiding anymore God, I don't know who needs to hear what in what way this morning, but God, I pray that your spirit would just speak into our minds and open our hearts. Whether we know you or not, we don't know you yet. God, I pray that we can just surrender our lives to you. God, that we could experience that. And God, that we would row towards those around us who need you. God, that we would be so overwhelmed with the same love that you have God, that we would run to people that need you. God, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.